Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Okay, well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our event here at the uh, Oxfam Moot Tent, uh, an event in association with uh, Cambridge University. Um, we humans have a strange uh, and a complex relationship uh, with risk. Uh, we say life is risk. We say risk it all. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg of uh, Facebook fame says the biggest risk we face is not taking any risks. Now, the risks that we do take and those that we don't and the thought process behind that uh, is a fascinating subject. Uh, of course, it's also an important subject because often the risks that individuals choose to take impact upon all of us. As you would expect, it's a science because, of course, there's an ology in everything. And luckily, we have with us someone who, who knows all about that. Um, Professor Teresa Marto, uh, her original ambition was to be a nun. Um, instead, she's the Director of Behavioural and uh, Health Research at Cambridge University. That means that she's at the cutting edge um, of this discipline. Obviously, that's the cutting edge that we've had fully risk assessed. Um, we're here together for an hour. Um, uh, initially, for about 40 minutes probably, she will give us uh, her thoughts on that, and then I will come to you for your questions. So as she's speaking, anything that comes to mind, uh, do note that down. Um, and all things being equal, we'll listen to her, we'll be able to fully assess risk, and we'll all live to 120. Okay. Um, or not, as the case may be. <laughs> so, okay, well, buckle up, uh, put those cigarettes out, put your wine glasses down, and let's listen to Professor Teresa Marto. Thank you very much. I want to start by asking you in true Hay fashion to imagine. And what I want you to imagine is that you've undergone a health check and you've learned that you've got an above-average chance of developing diabetes in the next few years. But the good news is you could reduce your chances to average or even lower if you managed to lose those extra pounds and engaged in vigorous or moderate to vigorous physical activity for 30 minutes a day, five days a week. What I'm going to tell you is about some of the forces that interact that will conspire to make it very unlikely that you would achieve that. <laughs> um, so these are forces that concern non-conscious processes that shape uh, much of our behaviour, interacting with cues in our environment that make it more likely that we engage in some of the unhealthy behaviours that Hugh's already mentioned. But this is early on the day, and I don't want to get you too uh, depressed about this. So what I want to do is to try in my talk to share with you what I've increasingly come to see as the paradoxical nature of information, which is that while risk information doesn't change our unhealthy behaviour, knowing why it doesn't might. OK, so bear with me. I'm going to step back and say something about the problem. And our unhealthy behaviour, four sets of unhealthy behaviour, smoking, consuming too much alcohol, consuming too much food, 
and that which most of you are engaged in, uh, consuming too much, too much sedentary behaviour, are the four key causes of premature death worldwide. So this is in low, middle, as well as high-income countries. And these contribute to the, four, th the three key diseases here, um, cancer, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes. But the good news is that if we could eliminate these, uh, this is a big ask, I know, uh, it's estimated that we could reduce the rates of diabetes and cardiovascular disease by 75% and cancers by 40%. And importantly, because these behaviours tend to be more common amongst the poor than the rich, if we could make these changes, we could reduce the gap in life expectancy and years lived in good health um, by about 50%. To give you a sense of these rates in the UK population, um, around 70% of our population smoke, and this is the lowest figure um, for, for many decades, which is good news, but amongst those who are poorest, the rates are twice as high amongst those who are richest. So we've still got a way to go there. Amongst those who consume alcohol, around 25% of us drink at a rate that's considered harmful to our health. Um, the majority of our population eat more than they need. And this figure may come as a bit of a shock to you, um, that 95% of us are inactive, i.e. we don't meet the guidelines which I mentioned at the very beginning, which is 150 minutes of vigorous, um, moderate or vigorous physical activity a week. Now, usually the figure shown is 60%, but that's based on self-report. 95% <laughs> is when it's measured objectively, so don't let's kid ourselves. OK, there's no one way of changing behaviour. So I'm going to start by just looking at one uh, particular approach uh, that's often tried, which is that of giving people information about the risks to their health from engaging in these behaviours. Uh, many creative ways of presenting information to try to trap uh, or arrest or attract your attention. And... While these kinds of campaigns are generally effective at increasing our awareness of the risks, at best, they have only a small impact on our behaviour. So people have begun to think, well, perhaps if we could personalise this risk, if it was about you and your precise risk, that might motivate people uh, to engage in um, the behaviour change that would reduce the risks. There are many types of risk information that can be given to people and in many different forms. You can go online and you can find out um, uh, about uh, your, your, your sell-by date. And uh, in this rather subtly uh, named uh, website, <laughs> Countdown to Death, um, you can find out when you're going to exit, not the stage, but actually the world. Um, so this is very precise and probably incredibly inaccurate information. 
You could use some of your precious remaining minutes and go along uh, to uh, uh, a health check that's, that's run by the health service, which are being offered in some parts of England and Wales um, for those aged between 40 and 65, and uh, have a risk assessment for um, heart disease, diabetes, also kidney disease and stroke. And the information you'll be given would be, as I say, less precise but more valid. Um, there's been quite a lot of interest in risk information from our genes. And uh, this is uh, an example of a, a test that you can buy online. Uh, I have no shares in this company. I'm not promoting it, but it's just uh, give you an illustration of what can be purchased. And this is uh, telling you that you could become, uh, take a more active role in managing your health. And an example is given of the kind of information you might receive from adding this to your cart, uh, parting with, I think it's £125, uh, and uh, providing a sample of your saliva. And uh, to, uh, um, they, they give an example here of uh, a test result for type 2 diabetes, where you could learn of a risk that's as low as 8% or as high as 52%, and then find out what you can do, which will be eat less, move more. Um, does this information change our behaviour? In my own group, we conducted two very large trials where we were um, giving this type of information to close relatives of people who had inherited uh, predispositions for um, heart disease. And we found that it had no impact on the likelihood that they changed their behaviour to reduce those risks. But we wanted to know, was that representative of the literature? So we've conducted what's called a systematic review, where we search systematically for studies to um, find what the impact is of presenting this risk information to one group, and either no risk information or risk information based on other biological markers, and to see whether or not it reduces uh, smoking in these people, or it makes them increase their physical activity, changes their diet, or reduces levels of um, alcohol consumption. And what we found, um, this is just cutting to the chase, from 18 studies that we brought together, was that where they're synthesised using statistics, um, there was no evidence that this changed people's behaviour. Now, that's not to say that no one changed their behaviour, but the chances that anyone changed their behaviour was the same in the groups given risk information, other types of risk information, or no risk information. You might think, well, maybe risk information makes people feel fatalistic. Three other reviews have been conducted, not looking at um, genetic risk, but other kinds of risk, and it's the same pattern of findings. So why doesn't risk information always change our behaviour? I think you can see uh, the clues in this uh, set of photographs. On the right, um, what you can see is information about uh, a, high, a highly probable uh, outcome that's probably incompatible with life. 
um, that's going to be pretty immediate. And on the left-hand side, you've got, well, unless there's a crocodile behind that sofa, um, I don't know, um, it's, uh, it's something that's going to happen in the future. It's uh, probably more uncertain and probably not quite as threatening as falling into the ice. And in addition, people uh, are being uh, invited to swap what would be immediate pleasure, assuming this adolescent is uh, engaged in pleasure here, uh, for something that's in the, in, in the distance and uh, uncertain benefit. So what we could say is that the threat from this information isn't big enough and even if the threat is big enough, people, some people will become motivated. And here's the thing, environments have a very strong influence on our behavior, much stronger than we think they do, and much stronger than we want them to have. And that's mainly what I'm going to focus on. I'm going to try to explain this a little bit more um, by um, looking at, very simply, how our brain uh, can regulate our behaviour. Now, I'm helped by two books uh, that have popularised these ideas. And while I can't see you, I'm imagining... I, in fact, I can see enough. Can people put up their hands if they've either read or are familiar with the ideas in Thinking Fast and Slow or Nudge? So this is a wonderful, typical hey audience. Uh, <laughs> much better than the undergraduates at a certain unnamed university. Uh, <laughs> he read books and are familiar with contemporary ideas. So um, in brief, um, the one set of process, uh, one set of processes put simply, uh, ones that we're aware of, conscious ones, they tend to be slow, uh, focused on our thinking, and enable us to achieve uh, goals that, uh, that we value. Um, importantly, uh, we have a limited capacity for this set of processes. So, however smart you are, if you're asked, if I asked you to calculate um, 19 times 37 and divide by 17 and recall the next 10 sentences I'm going to speak, I think even a hay audience would struggle with that. So this set of processes uh, shape a relatively small number of behaviours, but it's complemented um, by the non-conscious set, uh, which is fast, based on feeling, association, habit, and, and the behaviours that these, uh, these processes tend to um, uh, shape our routine or habitual behaviours. And that's most of the behaviour that we're engaged in at any one time. So we can understand personalised risk information not having much of an impact, because first of all, it's targeting a set of processes that's limited, and it's not the processes that are regulating the key behaviours we want to change. So these behaviours, the four that I've talked about, are cued much more by our environments. And I'm going to talk about some of these environmental cues, and I'm using this term very much as shorthand for the multiple overlapping uh, environments in which we live at any one time. So physical, digital, economic, uh, social and cultural. So moving now to talk about just one subset 
of cues in our physical environment. And this is something my research team in Cambridge has been focused on. Um, based on uh, looking at literature, we've um, tried to develop a typology simply divided into two sets of cues, those relating to the property of objects that we encounter, and those related to their placement in the environment. So the size of products, and I'm going to say more about that, their presentation. So many of you will be aware that um, tobacco products are now packaged uh, in a standardized form using a color that is the most repellent known to humans, um, resembling fecal matter. Um, labels can uh, increase or decrease the chances that we approach certain foods. The design of our environments. Here, you're all sitting. Um, I'm not. There's no chair here. Um, Ambiance, the kind of music that plays can affect uh, our consumption and what we buy. How close foods are to us, uh, or any object, uh, the more likely we are to take it. Uh, you need only to move a food by 10 inches and you've reduced by a significant amount the likelihood that we will reach over. Availability, the example here, is um, showing... Actually, one of my favourite experiments, is, I don't think it's ever been replicated. This is reducing the time, or rather increasing the time, at which uh, the lift doors close. So you have to have a notice saying... Don't call the engineers, there's nothing wrong with this lift. And you just have the lift doors closing very, very slowly. And people use the stairs. <laughs> so I'm going to talk just about one of these cues, which is size. Stuff's got bigger, as uh, just an example of iconic American products. And you'll see along the bottom, uh, so have the people. I don't know if this is, a, we call this an iconic product for us, but anyway, uh, the uh, humble slice of white bread um, has increased in size by 11% over the last 20 years in um, the UK. And if you've recently been outed as one of those people who eats the same sandwich, well, not exactly the same sandwich, but uh, eats a sandwich every day uh, for your lunch, uh, over the last 20 years, uh, this would mean that uh, you're consuming, on average, uh, 7,300 calories more than you were 20 years ago. Um, without probably noticing it, which is the equivalent of 26 Mars bars, if that's a helpful way of thinking about it. Plates have also got bigger. The question is, how much does this affect what we consume? Again, we set about addressing this question by looking at what is known already. So we conducted another systematic review. So these reviews are systematic in how they search for evidence and how they bring the evidence together. So the aim of this review was to estimate, as it says here, the impact of different sizes of portion, package, or tableware on the selection or consumption of, and this is weird, I know, food, alcohol, or tobacco. So there's no tableware involved in the consumption of tobacco, I know. Um, but anyway, that's what we did. The first finding... Often, I think one of the most interesting findings about reviews is where's the evidence? 
So we found 72 studies that met our criteria. So they had to be a study which had uh, compared two groups, one big and one smaller. 69 of the studies related to food. Three quite old studies related to the length of cigarettes. Um, and there were no studies in the public domain that related to the size of alcohol, so the portions, the glasses, or the packages. So I'm just going to tell you the results from our studies on food. And I am aware, and uh, Hugh, that this is a minor crime committed by academics to show things like this. OK, <laughs> I know that. Uh, so I'm not expecting you to read it, but I'm just uh, showing it up, uh, putting it up there to show you what kinds of things happen when you do these large systematic reviews. So what this is showing you is, for one, uh, the key analysis here. You've got a list of all the different studies that were found on the left-hand side. And then you've got lots of squares with little lines going through them. And there's a central line, which is being called the line of no effect. All right? So for each of the studies, the square shows what the effect is from the individual study. And if it's on the right-hand side, it's saying that the larger... Uh, it was the larger portion where more was consumed. If the square is on the left-hand side, it's saying it's the smaller uh, size where more was consumed. So if you just go into soft focus, you'll see that mostly the uh, squares are on the right-hand side. And at the very bottom, there's a diamond shape, which is looking at the averaged effect of all these studies. And that clears the line of no effect. <laughs> What that tells us, what we were able to infer from this, it's a pretty robust finding that the larger the portion of package or tableware, the more people eat. And this effect was seen regardless of whether people are large or small or gender. And we tried to translate that into something that was slightly more meaningful. So this is an heroic assumption that if we made sizes smaller for all food and tableware, every occasion that you encounter food, the effect of size would be to reduce how much we consume by up to 16% in adults per day. Okay, 279 calories. We also looked at children. The effect size is half that in children. And although we didn't look at this, we think it's because children are more sensitive to biological cues of hunger and satiety. So in our culture, in our environments, these are lost. I should say that two-thirds of our studies were conducted in laboratories. So we don't know how reducing portion size by small amounts will affect how much we consume in the real world. So we've now started what we call field studies, where we're uh, reducing the size of, say, a serving of lasagna or a slice of cake by about 10%, doing that in worksite cafeterias and seeing whether or not it does result in the expected reduction. How does portion size, uh, size cue consumption? Well, it seems to work in two ways. It uh, affects how much we take, so how much we end up having in front of us. So the larger the pack the more you take from it. With tableware, 
It's a sheer capacity thing. If the bowl is larger, you'll pour more crisps into it, and then you'll end up eating more. It's also a perceptual effect. And for those of you who collect famous Belgians, uh, <laughs> Joseph Delboeuf, a 19th century psychophysicist, who first described this illusion uh, as a contrast effect. So imagine this, so, so the dark circles are the same diameter, but when placed with a contrast uh, that's wider, it looks smaller. So imagine uh, the food served on the smaller plate, it looks like you've got more than when served on the larger plate. And it also seems there's limited evidence that suggests that the manner in which we eat, what we call micro-eating and drinking behaviours, are affected by size. So the smaller amount that we have, the smaller the tableware or glassware, we tend to take smaller bites and sips. And just one of a set of uh, evidences that this seems to be largely outside of awareness. So again, I don't know how many people here are familiar with bottomless soup bowls. <laughs> a few, okay. Um, so this is a really neat uh, technique for being able to study how portion size can affect how much we eat without there being the perception that you've got more or less. So the idea is, uh, well, well the, the device is, uh, there's a soup bowl uh, which has got a hole in the bottom and a tube that goes into a vat of soup. And as you eat the soup from the bowl at a slightly slower rate, soup is coming back into your bowl. So you never quite get to the end. So the experiments are run whereby people come into the lab, you sit at a table with a very long tablecloth uh, in tables of four, and two of you, without knowing it, have got bottomless soup bowls and two have got normal soup bowls. And you then look at uh, what people eat. So as you would expect, because you now know about the portion size effect, that people eat nearly twice as much when the bowl is being refilled. But when asked how much have you eaten, they rate it as the same. And not only that, when asked how full up do you feel, there's no difference. And when people are followed up later in the day, they don't compensate for having eaten more. They're eating the same. So even being told about the portion size effect doesn't always stop people from um, uh, consuming more. I want to move on now to say something about alcohol and size. Uh, as uh, some of you may recall, I mentioned that we found no studies on this. So we've started um, to look at this in some studies looking at wine glasses and uh, looking at, at uh, consumption of wine. You might think, oh, well, they would do that in Cambridge, wouldn't they? But actually, uh, wine is now, uh, as of the last few years, the most common form in which alcohol gets into our bodies. Wine glass sizes, there's a general sense that these have increased in size over the years, but we couldn't find any uh, uh, systematic assessment of that. So we've just completed what I would call an unsystematic uh, plotting of this, 
uh, looking at wine glass size in England over the last 300 years. Now, you will soon realise that there's a, 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 a survival problem. Uh, probably the larger glasses broke. Um, and we used a, 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 a rather um, sort of esoteric set of sources. Um, uh, the museum was, uh, which, which uh, the Ashmolean in, in Oxford uh, kindly allowed us in under supervision, and we measured the capacity of their collection of 18th century wine glasses. Uh, the glass pantry in Buckingham Palace were absolutely wonderful, and they allowed us in under very close supervision because they have a fine collection of wine glasses from the 19th and 20th century. Uh, and uh, other sources, eBay, uh, glassware manufacturers, and uh, John Lewis catalogue. So we measured uh, the wine glass capacity, and you can see that there's been a, a gradual increase in, in capacity, so that the, the, um, the bowl, um, from an average of about 65 millilitres to 450. And the key uh, period is the 1990s. How much does that matter? So we conducted the first of our field studies here. Um, and uh, this is uh, conducted in a very fine bar and restaurant that some of you might know in Cambridge called The Pint Shop. And uh, the common serving size, as noted here, is 175 millilitres of wine served particularly in the bar. And shown here are three wine glasses, which have all got 175 millilitres, actually it was Ribena, but uh, that was for the photograph. Um, and what they agreed to us doing was to buy them uh, a set of smaller wine glasses of the same design and a set of larger ones of the same design and to alternate the periods of time every two weeks, changing the wine glasses. So for two weeks, um, they had standard glasses, and the only outcome we had was sales. We didn't look at anyone's behaviour, just sales. And then for two weeks, we looked at sales with just larger wine glasses, and then two weeks with just smaller, and two weeks with standard, and so on. And what we found was that sales were higher overall in both areas by 9.4%, but particularly in the bar area. So when wine, the same wine, 175 millilitres being sold in larger glasses, sales in the bar area were up by 14%. And we found no difference between the standard or the smaller glasses. And we've got a number of hypotheses, and we might return to these uh, in the discussion. So we're now trying to replicate this in other bars, and restaurants and running some lab experiments to try to understand what's going on here. I should say, as a naked uh, uh, advert, uh, anybody here who uh, has control of uh, large uh, bars, such as Weatherspoons, who would like to collaborate with us, uh, we've asked you before, and uh, you might have just not realised how, how interesting and important this work is. We'd love to collaborate with you. Um, in terms of the impact uh, of the study, well, it was very well received. Journalists love learning about their own behaviour. And um, 
I, I, yeah, I see a lot of press interest in the uh, local, uh, I mean, national and international press. Uh, even the Wall Street Journal actually ran quite a long piece on it. And they interviewed the manager of the pint shop. And... Um, <laughs> As he said, could you imagine anything finer? Uh, <laughs> um, it's not that uh, those who can have the potential to regulate uh, wine glass size are being slow. I think what this, uh, I mean, they are, we are in touch uh, with the Home Office and the Department of Health and local license. Uh, they, those who uh, have charge of lo local licensing um, where something could be done. But I think this speaks to the asymmetry of evidence that's needed for making changes in our environments. In the private sector, one study, go with it. Um, but it's not enough for a change that would likely be challenged in the courts. I've talked to you about just one queue of a subset of queues in one set of environments. So the Herculean task of... Uh, understanding more about other cues and in other environments continues. But what we need to think about is having identified cues that seem to be making quite a large impact on our behaviour, driving us towards less healthy behaviours, um, how might we go about changing those cues in our environments to make it more likely that we engage in healthier rather than less healthy behaviours? Um, Policymakers have a number of options, or levers is how sometimes uh, we like to think about them, for changing behaviour. And this just shows a range of uh, relatively, uh, it's a very simple way of uh, thinking about it, ranging from providing information all the way up to eliminating choice. In studies uh, that we've done, again, another review, generally, people find it pretty acceptable for governments to provide them information. But the higher, if you like, the more interventionist uh, the, the, um, the policy, the less acceptable they find it. But unfortunately, <laughs> um, generally, it's the more interventionist approaches which are the more effective. So one of the questions we're now thinking about is how is it possible, well, is it possible to align more closely people's acceptability of interventions that would be more effective? And towards that, we started to do a few studies, and I'm just going to share one of them with you. And this was looking at the acceptability of interventions to reduce consumption of sugary drinks, which, as um, you probably know, is a major source of, well, not just sugar, but uh, calories, particularly in adolescence. And this was a, a study that we conducted with about 1,000 UK and 1,000 US participants. And we found remarkably similar uh, views in those two populations. Uh, on the right-hand side, you'll see the bar, uh, which is showing acceptability, which is the red line across the middle, showing where 50% of uh, the respondents, 50% um, acceptability. And education or information, as I've already mentioned, is generally very popular with 
increasing the price, taxation less popular, with some of the environmental cue interventions being in between, that of altering size, shape or, or location in a store. But we also asked people um, about how effective they thought these interventions were, how fair, and also got a sense of how they understood obesity, crudely the extent to which they saw it as in people's genes, you know, driven by their genes, a lack of willpower, or being driven by the environment. And we found three uh, highly significant, uh, important predictors of acceptability. So the more people saw an intervention as effective, the more supportive they were of it, the more they saw it as fair, the more supportive, and importantly, the more they understood what I've been telling you, uh, that it's the environment that's driving overconsumption, and the more accepting they were of these interventions. Now, of course, these are correlations, and we uh, are now going on to do some experimental uh, uh, studies to see whether or not targeting these uh, ideas might change people's acceptability of some of the more um, effective interventions. But, of course, any message uh, from those interested in the health of populations will be competing with sometimes countermeasures from the industries that stand to lose from an improved uh, population health, uh, from people uh, not buying their stuff. And what, uh, what we can see is that some of the marketing materials very much are targeting some of the key predictors that we found. So this is an example of um, a marketing campaign in New York in, I think it was 2014, when the then mayor, uh, Michael Bloomberg, was attempting to cap the size at which sugary drinks could be sold. And he wanted to cap the size to 16 ounces. Um, that's about three quarters of a pint. So it wasn't that you couldn't buy more than one bottle, uh, but it's just that uh, at any one serving, it could just be 16 ounces. Um, this was uh, a campaign funded by the soda industry. It was in the courts for a couple of years and eventually kicked out. So that's the one example I'm aware of where anyone in the world has tried to cap the size at which a product is sold. Another example, closer to home, we had a consultation um, in 2013 on minimum unit price on alcohol in, in England. And uh, during, towards the end of the consultation, there was a marketing campaign from the Wine and Spirits Trade Association uh, that asked a question uh, to which uh, the answer was, um, well... Uh, well, you can answer it for yourself. Why should responsible drinkers pay more? Yeah, that's not fair. Um, anyway, we don't have a, a policy of minimum unit price in England, um, but Scotland is hoping to soon. To summarise, um, I've talked about just some of the environmental cues uh, that are shaping our behaviour without our awareness. And I said a little bit about why personalised risk information is unlikely to be the answer uh, to uh, changing our behaviour at the scale needed. But I want to leave you with this idea that it's possible that if we did understand about these forces that are not working with us but working against us, i.e. 
the non-conscious nature of our behavior combined with our environment, stuffed with cues that are working towards us uh, behaving in an unhealthy way. If we had information about that, it could change our behavior if it leads us to support the policies to change environmental cues. So I hope I've made a little bit clearer to you uh, what, what I'm calling the information paradox, that while risk information doesn't change our unhealthy behavior, knowing why it doesn't might. And finally, I just want to say that I've been here representing a team of wonderful investigators, and uh, all our work is made possible by funding from uh, the Department of Health, the Medical Research Council, and the Wellcome Trust, which we thank very much. And finally, finally, uh, we can thank those funding bodies because uh, they also uh, fund open access to all our research. So I'm not selling a book, but it's free. So you can find online any of the studies, and if you can't find them, then email me and I'll send them to you. Thanks very much. Well, Professor Marto, you represented them uh, wonderfully well. Um, I was very taken with the bottomless soup bowl. I wondered if you had a beer glass like that for me. <laughs> Um, I'm going to take um, some questions from you, um, and so we'll go, the microphones are, uh, people with the microphones are, are, are in the hall at different points, so if you're ready, um, I will take some questions. I just want to quickly ask you, just very quickly, um, of course this is intensely political, isn't there, because there's a political philosophy that doesn't really want to shape the environment, that says these are things that are best left to personal responsibility. How do you go about persuading politicians that this is something that they need to do? Is, uh, is it is a matter of saying, look, we've tried this, it is, it is effective? At what point does the effectiveness of it overcome their political philosophy? I think it's a really good question that the political philosophers can answer. I'm sure there are possibly some here. Um, as a behavioural scientist, I'm interested in... Um, how we might be able to present the information in a way that can counter some of the messages that people are getting from industries um, that actually are um, going against the mm. evidence, if you like, of what is important in terms of shaping our behaviour. So a lot of messages from industry uh, are about just, you know, people are grown up, just yeah. give them information. Um, but as you've seen, uh, that's not quite how but it, it works. But it must be a tough sell for someone who philosophically says, I should not be intervening there. I think that's absolutely right. So that's partly um, why I'm talking here at an event like this, um, because I think it's very important. I now see that uh, we've got our politicians, uh, and there's a limit as to what you can do. We are in a democracy, and I think it's important that if people... Uh, have a better understanding of what is happening to the cues in their environments and how those are shaping their behaviour. That it's if there's a louder voice from people based on their understanding, I think that is the chink that we need to try. Oh, I see. So she's come here to nobble all of you. It's, all, it's down to all of you. Let's take some questions. Um, I'm going to take you there and then um, the lady down here. 
The most successful intervention that we've seen in our generation has been the reduction in smoking rates. Uh, would you like to comment on what uh, policy and environmental changes has led to that reduction and how they translate to these other health uh, issues such as exercise, obesity and alcohol? Because smoking has been incredibly successful. Uh, it's moved from being socially acceptable to almost socially unacceptable. How do we make that translation for our other poor health behaviours? Yeah, really good question. Um, See, so people are looking at uh, tobacco as providing a very good example. It's hard to tease out individual effects, but it's likely that price has been an incredibly important factor. Um, without having the evidence, there was a, uh, a restrictions and bans on advertising in a way that is proving more difficult for other products. Um, reducing the availability of where the behaviour could take place. So we've seen um, smoke-free places. Um, I, the provision of services for those who are already smoking um, to uh, enable them to stop. Uh, medication that helps people to, um, to stop smoking. Um, and uh, the standardised packaging, which is very much aimed at uh, children, reducing the appeal uh, from, from the branded pack. So, so the key point that I think you raise in your question is that it, it's a multiplicity of interventions. We also need to remind ourselves that there have never been so many smokers alive on this planet as now. And so while we've shifted smoking in high-income countries, um, the industry is uh, busy uh, elsewhere. But how have we been able to, to face down the pushback there would have been then from the tobacco industry? I think... Um, I, uh, so how, how did we? How, yeah, how has that yeah. been possible? Um, Is that weight of evidence? I, uh, well, um, I'm thinking that the industry uh, wasn't uh, as prepared as they probably are now. Um, and... Tobacco also differs from food and alcohol mm. in that uh, tobacco is the most lethal legal product on the planet, killing one in two people that use it as intended. Um, so people felt empowered uh, to go farther, faster, yeah. um, but we still have a way to go. Okay, it was always very disturbing to me when they came up with that colour for the packets, the worst possible colour in the world, to, to look in the wardrobe and see I've got clothes in, in, that, in that very colour. <laughs> <laughs> I think there was a, a, a lady down here. Is this on? Yeah, thank you. It's a really interesting talk. I wanted to ask whether you've been doing any research around social and cultural environments and how they can affect behaviour change, particularly in terms of um, lifestyle changes or managing long-term health conditions, whether there's research and evidence that supports things like um, peer support group, peer support groups for changing behaviour. We haven't, um, but there is research on that. Um, what we've been focused on is just, as I said, just sort of one very, very tiny set of cues, and goodness, that's difficult enough, I must say. Um, I, there's been some work looking at uh, 
peer support for stopping smoking. I'm not sure that that's uh, shown to be that, uh, that effective. I think uh, in, in managing chronic conditions, that's where there's slightly more evidence, but it's, it's not my field of expertise. Okay, let's take another question. Um, a gentleman at the back there in the, in the black, I think. A bit further down, a bit further, keep going. And uh, then we'll go... Oh, well, down here. And I'll come to you after. I'll come to you after. Uh, yeah, hi. Thank, thanks very much for the talk. It was, it was fascinating. Um, you mentioned price a couple of times, it sort of in passing. Um, and then when we had the tobacco question, sort of your first um, thought about what might have affected tobacco consumption was price. Um, is there a reason you're not investigating price, or are you? Is there already a lot of evidence about how kind of price changes affect behaviour, or, or is it because you think that kind of the political challenges doing anything about price sort of make research less useful or it'd be interesting to hear a bit more about about that because it seemed quite salient especially around what you said earlier about um, uh, inequality and the fact that richer people would be less affected by some of this than poorer. Yes good question um, so uh, with a with a hammer everything looks like a nail I'm a behavioral scientist that focuses uh, no, I'm not not an economist and uh, to put him on the spot Richard I gave you a free ticket you're somewhere here he was the economist working with us um, so, <laughs> there he is there he is <laughs> so professor Richard Smith from London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine uh, who is in our team uh, you might want to say a couple of words uh, if that's allowed yeah we'll get the mic to you uh, yeah uh, let's let's have the economist speak out so um, I've been talking about as I say cues in physical environments but you're absolutely right that cues in economic environments um, are helpful. Always travel with your economist. Uh, <laughs> Have we got a mic to him yet? Yeah, I think, we... I think there's one just coming to him. See, there, yeah. really, there, really there we is, are. There really is not, no such thing as a free lunch, I'm afraid. Uh, or free ticket. <laughs> no, no such thing as a free ticket Indeed. to Theresa's event. <laughs> um, two, two things about price. I think one is with uh, smoking, you have to realise just how much the tax is on that and whether you'll be prepared to go for a hundred or two hundred percent tax on some of your soft drink which might be the sort of level you'd need to have that sort of effect the other is uh, the messaging around the price and very little price change happens without some message going around it and that's either advertising when you reduce price of course but if you want to increase price What's your message around it? If it's um, tax for tax's sake, then it's not going to work very well. The way they've looked at the current um, uh, sugar tax levy to introduce is saying that they will use that money for good purposes around school education campaigns and things. So you've got to be careful then to say what's having the effect. Is it the price or is it the other messaging around it? Um, and I think... The interesting question is to try to tease those, um, those things apart. So what's a pure price effect and what actually is um, more the, the advertising, for want of a better expression, around that price effect? That's what we need to try to understand. Uh, and just to add to that, Rich, in the studies that have been done in Mexico, where there's been an increase in, in price on, on sugary drinks, the reduction 
in uh, purchasing of those drinks is higher than should have been predicted from the price. So people talk about a signalling effect, that when prices start to go up, uh, people mm. realise, mm. oh, you know, there's something about these goods that uh, isn't uh, okay. so good. Can we get a microphone down here? I mean, of course, in terms of price, uh, much of the competition is on people saying, if you pay the same, we'll give you more. Exactly I mean, that, right. That actually exactly is a, a right. Competition, exactly right. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so that's another hurdle for you to get over. Uh, well, not for me. Uh, so we just turn the handle, generate the evidence, yeah. and uh, it's for, for policymakers to think about what 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 can be done. And I think you're absolutely right that it's an intensely political question that when we have this evidence, that there are cues in our environment that are, um, if you like, uh, affecting us as taxpayers longer term. So it's estimated that diabetes is costing the NHS 10% of its spend. Uh, we're paying for that. Um, so uh, the extent to which uh, government should be uh, focusing on that rather than uh, free markets mm. where others um, are, are, are profiting. It's, it's a political question. Yeah. You're quite the troublemaker, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> you, sir. Hello. Yeah. Mm, you, your presentation mainly focused on uh, how to reduce harmful behaviour, not eating more, giving up yeah. smoking. But you didn't, you didn't talk about how to take up more helpful behaviours, like exercising more and so on. Uh, do you want to say something about the evidence available uh, for taking up more uh, helpful behaviours, like exercising more? Um, thank you, yes. Um, I, I didn't have time to talk about everything. And um, so I just mentioned some of the cues in our environment, such as the design of uh, our built environment. So we're all sitting down. Um, uh, some of you be aware of research that's, that's happening looking at furniture, sit-stand desks. Is that a good idea? Will that increase uh, energy expenditure? Thinking about this then gets very macro. You know, it's the design of our streets. Um, so there's, there's some evidence to show that uh, in safer neighbourhoods where there's more pavements, then people will walk more when you get uh, fewer cars. So uh, the design of our environments uh, is, is, is uh, uh, some of the cues. Um, but again, that, uh, those, uh, the cues have been identified, but it's, up, uh, it's others who have control of those environments. Uh, and the lifts. I mean, the other point that I'd want to emphasise is that I've been talking... Uh, so, so here you've been asking me about um, uh, companies, uh, so, so sort of private sector. Much of our behaviour takes place in public, what I call public sector environments. And we've done quite a good job in schools, particularly primary schools, in having healthier environments. Less, less good in secondary schools, but that's, that's coming, uh, becoming better. But thinking about uh, council-owned leisure centres or our hospitals, I mean, some of them, it's quite frankly disgraceful. What are we doing with Burger Kings mm -hmm. uh, inside, uh, for instance, Addenbrooke's Hospital? Um, so that's where uh, it's not just about others doing things. Uh, many people in this room will have some control over the environment where they study or where they work, and we could do more. Um, I think another problem is that 
people have no idea what a healthier environment looks like because it's we never see it. Um, so to actually start modelling what a healthy environment would look like, I think would go a long way. Okay, I think there was a questioner in the middle here that I uh, promised a while ago, and there's another, uh, the lady here. Um, we'll bring a microphone to as well. Um, is there an issue um, if, if people won't make decisions uh, about their own health or long-term decisions about their own health? What if you will they make decisions on behalf of someone else, a loved one? Are you able not so much nudge but nag? <laughs> Even if you don't worry so much about yourself in the long term, what about your husband or what about your children? Is that, is that an easier sell? I, I don't know. I imagine it's easier to nag others, partly because you're observing other people's behaviour and you're not the one who is uh, in the environments where your behaviour is, uh, yeah. your unhealthy behaviour is being cued. It's, it's not something I'd recommend to you, Hugh. Uh, if you uh, are valuing your, your wife. I think, you need yeah, some, yeah. I think you need some credibility, and I have none anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you, sir. Uh, hello. Um, you've spoken a lot about how uh, when we have larger portions and have the larger wine glasses in the restaurant, which the name has escaped me, uh, it increased the profit of the shop. And uh, this is a problem to um, horribly paraphrase Noam Chomsky. Um, if... Uh, the profit is in it, the companies will make us fat. Um, and so uh, we have a problem here of it's almost competing against uh, capital. Uh, so with policymakers, uh, you can't... Uh, there's a lot of pushback against negative actions, and so people try to do positive action and promote healthier responses. Has there been any research into trying to promote rather than um, restrict um, negative behaviours? Yeah, good question. Um, see, this study that springs to mind, one in, in my research group, where uh, we've uh, compared directly um, these were images that were associated with uh, unhealthy foods, um, so you can, uh, or healthy foods, so you can associate uh, grim images, rather like on, on packets of cigarettes, of the negative consequences of eating this, uh, eating this food, uh, or you can have positive images of people sort of leaping uh, up uh, Hay Bluff, uh, looking wonderful uh, when it's not raining. Um, <laughs> And what we find is that people are much more sensitive to the negative images. The positive images have much less of an impact on our behaviour. Um, so I'm not... Um, I don't know enough... Uh, so, so in animal literature as well, uh, it's, it's part of uh, e evolutionary process that we are more sensitive to threat signals than uh, to stop signals than to go signals. Well, yeah. What does that say about us? I think I'm going to be able to take one more here and it's the lady at the front. And you have to factor in there that we are imitating creatures as well which I think is very powerful and very powerful with the why smoking was given up because of the pressure from one's peers. But um, I'm very curious of something that always really annoys me is going out through the checkout of my local Sainsbury's and there's so much sugar at child level. To get to the checkout, you've got to walk past probably 15 feet of just laden with sugar 
And it sort of reminds me, I'm a, I actually used to, uh, retired now, but I worked at Guy's and St. Thomas's on the cancer units. And when I first began, they had a smoker's corner in, in the corridor outside the, the cancer ward doors. And now you can't actually smoke on the whole hospital, um, you know, in, in the hospital at all. And it seems to me it'd be very simple to put pressure on people like Sainsbury's to say, well, do you have to put all those sweets at the, at, at the checkout? Can I get an answer on that? Because we're running out of time pretty quickly. What, what do you say um, to that? Yes, I absolutely agree. And various supermarkets say at different stages, uh, at, at different times, that yes, this is something they're, they're going to do. Um, so some of them are doing it. Um, but again, I would say that uh, there's um, nothing like pressure from the consumer. Make your voices known. So folks, it's all on you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your questions. <laughs>